As we open the scriptures today and spend these next few moments magnifying the gospel by speaking it, I want to ask God, along with the Apostle Paul, as we looked in the last passage we studied two weeks ago, Ephesians 1.18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Amen? As we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we pick up where we left off when we last gathered two weeks ago and dive into the passage our friend Julie just read for us. Now remember, as I just said, uh, one of the priorities we feel that God has given us as a faith family for this year is that of being the church, which is why we are on this journey through this letter of Paul to these disciples. Now, in order to be or to become, there is a level of knowing or understanding that's required first. And what we long to see God do in our hearts as we study this letter is that our our understanding and our knowledge of who and what the church is, our love and our affections for the church might deepen, uh, that our embodiment and living out of God's purposes for the church might be realized, and ultimately, that grace might be made visible through the life and the ministry of the Hallows Church. You see, the church is often thought of or spoken of in institutional terms. But when we see the church in the scriptures, she is a people. A people for God's own possession, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. But how does the church come into existence is the question before us tonight. And I think today's passage will serve us to help us understand the beautiful reality of God's grace in salvation. Now, to chart the course for where we'll go tonight in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I see this passage beginning with us. It shows us who we were and, more importantly, where we were in relationship to God in our fallen condition. It then sharply turns the corner and shows us who God is, shows us aspects of his character and how he, in in our favor, in spite of who we were, in spite of what we were doing, he acted in kindness toward us. And Paul goes on to show us how he acted or the means by which he acted. And finally, we arrive at our destination, learning more about God's intentions or God's purposes for our lives as the church in the world that is, as we learn about this amazing reality of God's grace. And we have to remember that this letter This letter to the church at Ephesus, to the the saints at Ephesus, is being written to those who are responding to the gospel. They have heard it and they are responding to the gospel by trusting in the finished work of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and are thereby repenting of their sins. They are turning from their former way of living, and they are trusting in the gospel as they walk forward through this life. Now, this would accurately describe many, hopefully most of us gathered here today, right? So as we walk through this passage, as we study this letter, we should understand that it would, it would be a disservice to ourselves if we would exclude ourselves or see ourselves as being excluded from the audience to which Paul is writing. In other words, this letter is not to them or for them. This is a letter that is written to us and for us. So let's take a look at the passage and first see what was true of us by nature. To read with me again, 
verses 1 through 3, as we open our time together. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, and since it's been two weeks since we opened the scriptures together in this way and studied this letter, I'm a firm believer that if a sentence begins with a conjunction like and or but or if, that it would serve us to more fully understand what it's, what's being communicated here if we were to take a few steps back and read what comes before that, what the and is connecting the thoughts of. So if you would do that with me and look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. We read this and studied this the last time we were together. It says, He, God the Father, exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And you, saints, the church, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. Now, you've likely heard that in order for the gospel to truly be good news, we've got to know what's so bad about the alternative, right? Otherwise, it's just news. Well, the Apostle Paul begins by painting a very grim, a very dark, helpless, and hopeless picture for us. But it's not just a picture that he's painting for us. It's a picture that he's painting of us. The first thing he says is that you were dead. Not only were you dead, but you were the walking dead, as it were. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he says, in which you previously lived. Another translation would say, in which you once walked. You were dead, but you were also alive. Now, this reminds me of what Paul is conveying or trying to get after in Romans chapter 6 when he says that either you're going to be alive to sin and dead to God, or you will be dead to sin by the power of God and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here in Ephesians 2, Paul is saying because we were dead and we were walking in our sins and trespasses, we were essentially alive to sin and therefore dead to God. But that's not all. It gets worse. We were also living in rebellion. We were dead and disobedient. Look at the passage again. He goes on to say, you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of air, of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. See, we were born in rebellion to God's rule. And we were gladly in bondage, gladly submitted to the leader of that very rebellion. Satan, the devil, the great adversary of Christ who is, as this passage describes, the ruler of the power of the air. Other translation would, would say that he is the prince of the power of the air. We were gladly in bondage and not looking for a way out. 
Now, I think it's important to note, since we took some time to back up and get some context so we can understand the thoughts that were being connected from the previous passage till today's passage, I think it's important for us to note and understand that even though we're right in the middle of the bad news, that this ruler is the very one that Christ has been seated far above in this age and in the age to come for the church. Context is important. But before I get ahead of myself, as a result of being dead and disobedient, we were also doomed. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 goes on to say that we to all, all of us, notice how Paul's language changes. In verses 1 and 2, he says you, and now he uses the, the, the plural we. He says we to all previously lived among them. Among who? Among the disobedient. In our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others, the other disobedient people were also. You see, whatever pleased our bellies, whatever pleased our bodies, whatever seemed right and delightful to our sinful imaginations and inclinations, Whatever seemed fun and enjoyable, no matter at whose expense it came, we did it. We did it with no regard for God. We did it no, for, with no regard for his design, for his purposes, for our lives, and for the way he intended for life to be lived in his created world. We did exactly what we wanted to do. And as a result, we were under and destined to experience God's wrath like the rest of unbelieving, rebellious humanity. Again, the situation, the picture that Paul is painting here is very grim, very dark, and we were very helpless and very hopeless. Now, I'm reminded of an old hymn that we would sing in the church that I grew up in. It's entitled, Love Lifted Me. Some of you might be familiar with it. I love the tune and the imagery, the picture that's being painted in the first verse. It says, I was sinking deep in sin. Far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea, he heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. And the refrain joyously says, love lifted me, love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. Now this is beautiful and amazingly praiseworthy, right? But the picture that is painted for us in this passage is far more grim than that. As a pastor friend of mine described it, we were, we were not sinking deep in sin. We were not drowning. We had sunk and we were drowned. We were dead in the water. And the very sin that we were so deeply stained by was essentially the uniform by which we were identified with the enemy. We weren't calling out, crying out to the master for rescue. As a matter of fact, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, we had in fact stamped to our chest a spiritual DNR, do not resuscitate order. We had no desire, neither did we deserve to be rescued from the plight of death we were in, nor the wrath we were under. Enter here the glorious good news of the gospel, but God. Look with me 
in verses 7, 4 through 7, where it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. You're saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. As I read and prayerfully meditated on this passage this week, my heart grew more encouraged and more excited about who our God is and what he has done. And my response was that of worship. The reason why I got excited is because I began to to read and meditate this passage like this. But God, who is rich in mercy. But God, because of his great love that he had for us. But God made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. Now you want to you want the wood of your spiritual life to be lit a fire? Then take time in your reading of the scriptures to slow down and meditate on a passage in this way. Reading and rereading, chewing on it as it were, allowing the accent and the emphasis to fall on different words and different phrases. So let's do that for a moment. Let's ask God to light our spiritual wood of fire. Let's take our foot off the accelerator and allow ourselves to to slow down so we can take in all the rich and beautiful scenery of this section of the passage. Think about this. But God, who is rich in mercy. Now, what is mercy? Well, the many ways it can be defined, some of which are like mercy is compassionate treatment of those in distress. Or mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown toward someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. It's a big definition there. The simplest that I've heard and held on to through the years is this. Mercy is God not giving me what I justly deserve. And here. Here, in this passage, in Ephesians 2, we are told that our God is rich in mercy, that he is rich in compassion, that he is rich in forgiveness, that he is rich in forbearance. He puts up with us when he doesn't have to. You think about your life before Christ. You think about the things that you identified with, the things that defined you, the things that you delighted in, the things that that consumed the reality of who you were. And you think about how you deserved God's judgment and wrath for who you were, for where you were. And then think about how God did not give you what you deserve. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. Now that, that is something to praise God for. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, because of his great love that he had for us. Now, this is another profound and glorious thought because 
This comes in direct contrast to who we were as outlined in verses 1 through 3. The Old Testament frequently refers or describes God as abounding in steadfast or in faithful love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. If you want to know what love is, look at God. God is love. You see, God loved us even when we were most unlovely. And I would even say not just when we were unlovely, but when we were unlovable. So our grateful response to such a merciful and loving God should be that of worship. But our meditation is not done yet. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, because of the great love he had for us, but God made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. Even though we were dead, disobedient, and doomed, God made us alive together with Christ. You see, there was nothing in us that made us attractive, that caught God's attention, that made us attractive to him, to made us desirable to him in our fallen condition. We didn't have any potential. We didn't have any beauty. We didn't have any redeeming or redeemable qualities. Which is exactly why Paul exclaims, you're saved by grace. That's it. It's the grace of God. You and I are saved by God's unmerited favor toward us. We did and in fact could not do anything to earn it. Now, if we're going to be the church, if we're going to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who the church is and what God intended her to be, if we're going to live out the reality and the purposes of the church in the world that is by God's design, then we must, we must, we must first embrace the glorious truth, the reality that the church does not exist apart from God's grace. God's grace is made visible through the church because the church does not exist apart from his grace. So something that should be a normal aspect of our lives as disciples, a a normal aspect of our witness as those who are saved by grace is the telling of our stories. Now, as we pursue the priority of missional engagement, another priority that we believe God has given us to pursue together as a faith family in this year, we are learning how to do just that, learning how to tell our stories in our missional communities. Knowing that we're dead, that we were dead, knowing that we were disobedient, knowing that we were doomed, knowing how rich God was in mercy toward us, knowing that he made us alive with Christ, saving us by his grace. We should regularly encourage one another with the stories of how God brought this about in our lives every time we meet. And we should be willing and ready to share this story with those who have yet to taste and see for themselves that the Lord is good. This is what it means to proclaim the praises, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because Paul says you are saved by grace, I think it's important to establish and to reestablish what is meant by being saved. Being saved may be This word saved or being saved, the concept thereof, might be new to some of us. 
Uh, for many of us, we, we've heard it for a long time. We've heard it for years, maybe even your whole life. But I think it's important to always establish and to reestablish what we mean by being saved. Well, first and foremost, we've been saved from the penalty of our sin, the punishment or the condemnation that we justly, rightly deserve for having been dead and been disobedient. This is what's known as or called justification. We are made right with God through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus rising from the grave three days later is the proof that his death was an acceptable sacrifice to usher in the forgiveness of sins for humanity. So we are saved. We are justified from the penalty of our sin through Jesus' sacrifice. Not only that, but we are being saved. We are being saved or rescued from the power, the clutches, the grip of sin in our everyday lives. Now, this is an ongoing, lifelong, progressive process known as or called sanctification. And we will be saved. There is a past, there is a present, and there is a future aspect to our salvation. We will be saved eternally from the very presence of sin. What's known as being glorified or glorification. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what it means or what it will look like to be glorified. He also says in that passage that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't step into God's presence in these bodies. And so God will give us a new body and we will live in a new place that sin has never tainted. That is what it means to be saved from the presence of sin, to be glorified. Paul says, by grace, you are saved. And he continues to add fuel to the fire of our praise in verses six and seven. Look at it with me. He says, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Not only did God make us alive with Christ, but we were, we have been, past tense, raised up and seated with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. It's amazing reality. The amazing reality of this is that the very powers that we were once subject to, that were ruling over us, that we were in bondage to, because we are now in Christ, they are no longer over us, they are under us. That we can resist the devil, as James says in James 4, 7, unlike unbelieving people, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. We can and should, according to Romans 6, 11, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be raised up and to be seated. This, this is the kind of powerful, revolutionary truth I believe Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll get there in a couple of months. But Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about taking up the sword of the Spirit. Now, some of you might be able to memorize long swaths of scripture. That's, that's fantastic. That's great. I knew a guy once who memorized the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. I've known people to set out and to memorize uh, books or letters like Ephesians or Philippians. That's fantastic if you can do that. More power to you. Go for it. Praise God. That's great. 
But I think it's more important now, in my opinion, I think it's more important for us to, to be able to lay hold of these gospel reality truths from the scriptures like this, knowing that we have been raised up and seated with Christ, knowing what that means. It's important for us to be able to grab a hold of truths like that so when the enemy comes with his lies and his temptations, we can stand against him knowing that he's already a defeated foe, that he has no power over us because we are found in Christ. So that, he says, in the coming ages, what does that mean? Forever and ever and ever, he might display the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, through his mercy and his great love and by his grace, we have been made into trophies of God's grace. Now, I don't know how, how that makes you feel, hearing that. Hearing that you're a trophy of God's grace. But it humbles me. It humbles me because I know the life that I have lived and how where I stand in position to God because of Christ, I deserve not to be there. But in his grace, his mercy, his kindness toward me, his kindness toward us, he has so designed it that he wants to forever and ever and ever display his immeasurable riches through his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I rejoice, and we should rejoice in the good news of the gospel that though we were dead, though we were disobedient, though we were doomed, but God. So how does it work? How does this work exactly? How, how is this realized in the life of a believer? Well, Paul continues by telling us that it is by grace through faith. Read it with me in verses 8 and 9. For you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Now, first, Paul reiterates that we are saved by the grace of God, that God acted in kindness toward us when there was no reason for him to. But he goes on to clarify that our salvation is not fully realized or apprehended. It's not fully laid hold of until we have exercised faith. Until we are believing, until we are trusting, until we are relying on, until we are depending on what God has done for us in Christ and depending on that alone. He says you are saved by grace through faith. So you can hear all the days of your life how amazing God's grace is. You can take the time to study the scriptures and study all aspects of theology and know all the ins and outs of all the arguments of what God has done in his mercy and his kindness to, to rescue and to reconcile sinful, rebellious humanity to himself, making them sons and daughters, seating them in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But here's the reality. Until you embrace this as truth for you by faith, you have not truly laid hold or grasp of the grace of God being realized in your life. You see, as long as you see that there's an alternative, another path to God, another way to be found acceptable to God other than what he's provided through Jesus Christ, you are relying on your own works. 
what you can do, what you can achieve, how you can be made right with God. But you need to know that there is no amount of goodness. There is no amount of good morals, no amount of good religion or good education or good or charitable acts that will ultimately add up to make us acceptable to a holy God. Prophet Isaiah says it like this in Isaiah 64. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Another translation would say all of our acts are like filthy rags. All of us wither like a leaf and, all, and our iniquities carry us all away like the wind. See, there is no amount of good that will outweigh or cancel out our sin. Sin is not equal to being bad. Let me say that again. Sin is not equal to being bad. The world understands that to be the case. That is a falsehood. Sin is equal to being stained, to being ruined, to being rotten, to being dead. And this is what is so amazing about God's grace. Paul refutes any idea that you can do anything to deserve it, to earn it. It is absolutely 100% a gift of God. Not from works. Why? So that no one, so that you or I or anyone else can boast. Jesus is the only one that we are to boast in. When we embrace what God has done for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. As those who were dead, who, who were disobedient, who were doomed, we boast in the mercy, the love, the grace, and the kindness of God in making us alive with Christ. As the Reformers framed it, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And so we see all of this coming to fruition by his hand. Look with me in verse 10. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, as we reach our destination for today, landing the plane, as it were, we're given a sense of identity. We're given a sense of belonging, a declaration of whose we are in light of God's grace toward us in Christ. Now, as we'll see next week, we are, because of the grace of God, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 95, 7, for he is our God, because of his grace, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his care, under his care. He is our God and we are his people. What Paul says here in Ephesians 2 is also reminiscent of Isaiah 64 verse 8. It says, yet Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the works of your hands. We can rejoice in and celebrate the fact that we are God's workmanship. And the works that God has created for us as his people are 
good works. They are works that are in keeping with repentance. They are, they are works that result in lives flourishing and gospel-saturated relationships. They are results that lead to, they are works that lead to more and more people who are now presently dead, disobedient, and doomed being made alive with Christ by his grace and through the proclamation of his glorious gospel. This was the work that he prepared for us ahead of time. And I, I believe it was the work that he set out for us ever before the fall took place in the garden. When he gave us the glorious mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers who were in right relationship with the holy God, declaring his excellencies throughout eternity. This is the amazing privilege and the commission, the work that he has given to us And it is our privilege by his grace to be identified as his own, to be called his ambassadors, to be his ministers of reconciliation, to do, to walk out, to live in these good works that he prepared for us beforehand. So as we close this evening, I think a a few important takeaways for us today are number one, we need to, we need to rejoice in God's salvation. Why? Because this is a work that he alone has accomplished, which should fuel our praise and worship. We talked about grace and worship a couple of weeks ago. Like we should be bat crazy when we gather in a space like this and lift up songs to our God because no one has done for us what he has done. When we think about our God and how gracious and kind and merciful he has been to us, it should fuel our worship. It should lead to abundant rejoicing. But I think another thing that it should lead to is us being able to rest in him. That we should be confident like the apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, that we are sure that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can rest because Jesus himself in John 6, 29 said that this is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? This is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he sent. All of our works should extend from that place. Faith in the one that God has sent, which is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. So this should lead to us being able to, to rest, to not be overly concerned. If, if, did, we, did we say the right thing? Did we pray a prayer? Did we say the right thing in the prayer? Did, did, did we know all the facts before we began to believe? All of that goes out the window because the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. Faith in Christ alone. For that, we can trust him and we can rest in his promise. But the last thing I think that we can take away from this passage is we need to learn how to tell our story in such a way that Jesus is showcased. Jesus is featured as the hero of the story and share it. Don't just learn to share your story. Learn to share it and share it. Share it with your family. Share it with your friends, share it with your neighbors, share it with your colleagues. But my goodness, share it with your faith family. We should not be in community for any long length of time with one another and not know the stories of how God gloriously saved us by his grace. We should learn to share our story and share it. 
And our missional communities are an excellent place to learn how to do this, to share your story, and to practice that on an ongoing basis. <laughs> so I'll shamelessly say, if you're not connected to a missional community in the Hallows Church, I want to encourage you to take a step this very week towards getting connected to a body of believers so that you can learn and grow in biblical community, learn how to share your story, rejoice in the stories of what God is doing in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you so that we can go out and proclaim the excellencies, the praises of him who rescued us by his grace. If you're not in a missional community, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to connect you with one of our leaders. Uh, we have groups that meet all throughout the week. I would love to see you plugged in the community, growing in this way for your own good and for God's glory. Would you pray with me?